0: You are listening to the Mary Jane Society Podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, scientists, doctors, and inventors in the cannabis industry.
1: I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Today, I speak with Hirsch Jane, founder of Ananda Strategy. He's a cannabis industry consultant and government policy expert. He helps guide a company's competitive licensing efforts, expansion strategy, regulatory compliance, M&A activity, and venture capital raises. Hirsch shares current policy developments unfolding in key states around the country and how they may affect a cannabis business strategy. We're lucky to have Hirsch share his knowledge and welcome him to the show. I feel like 2024, you know, aside from rescheduling, um, there just could be some really great movement for, for the industry this, you know, this year, if, if, you know, based on all this stuff. So, um, could be good. Yeah.
0: The state level conversation is always, I think, very exciting because it's more than just a binary event, right? Will this happen when, you know, we've been speculating about the federal stuff for so long, the state's up is more tangible you
1: know yeah 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 right exactly exactly yeah so let's just start off with um so I know in Florida um voters are getting ready to decide if adult use marijuana will be legal when they go to the polls in the fall which is so exciting and um what what does legalization look like in that state for businesses and how how will um their current policies shape the rollout
0: Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can start by just talking about, you know, what has to happen between now and when this might appear on the ballot. You know, this might be familiar to you and your listeners already, but to tick through it quickly, many people know that there's an April 1st deadline by which the Florida Supreme Court has to sign off on this being on the ballot. So we have about a month and a half until they have a deadline to make that decision. Uh, You know, one thing to note is that the Florida Supreme Court tends to make decisions on Thursday morning. So for anyone who's watching for that decision, Thursday morning is generally when they issue their decisions. And I think the reason that we're calling attention to the fact that the Supreme Court has to opine is that, you know, in the previous two cycles in 2022 and 2020, the Florida Supreme Court deemed these initiatives unconstitutional. So that's why we're talking about whether um, they're going to approve it. And you'll find a spectrum of opinions on this. I'll just say, Pam, I'm pretty optimistic that the Florida Supreme Court is going to approve it. Uh, The initiative was written in a very narrow way um, to sort of align with what is called the single subject rule. In Florida, they say, hey, if you're going to put something on the ballot, that's fine, but it has to touch on a single subject. And they read that provision very narrowly. And so that this initiative was crafted much more narrowly than the previous ones. And- Mm -hmm. It, it's always a, a sort of dangerous game to say, you know, what are the justices thinking? But if you watch that Supreme Court hearing, the deep skepticism that a lot of these conservative justices expressed about the state's position, saying this was unconstitutional, leads me to to believe that they're likely to approve it. And m- maybe just a couple other procedural things I'll mention because I think they're important. And then, you know, to, to get to your question There has been a lot of talk about the fact that Ron DeSantis, you know, off the cuff on the presidential trail, indicated that he expected this would be on the ballot. Now, some people read a little too much into that and, you know, sort of suggested that he was saying it was already going to be on the ballot. But I think those those comments are telling, especially because he appointed a lot of those uh, conservative justices. And the thinking was, you know, Ron DeSantis doesn't like cannabis. They don't want anything on the November 2024 ballot, because when you have issues like abortion and cannabis on the ballot, then it tends to draw out more Democratic turnout. But really, I think what we've seen in recent years is that Florida isn't really a swing state anymore, at least at the presidential level. And so that all leads me to believe that it'll be on the ballot. And again, before we get to the business impact, I'll just express my optimism that I think it's going to pass if it's on the ballot Many people may know that there's a 60% threshold in order for it to pass. And so they might say, hey, you know, Ohio passed, but it only passed with 57% of the vote. 60 is a pretty high bar. But I think it's important to remember, you know, Florida, when it passed its medical program, it passed it by more than 70%. That's the ballot initiative that's gotten the most votes of any in history. We have this fairly normalized um, medical program in Florida, so people there are used to it. And, you know, Florida has kind of more of a freedom orientation, I think, than a place like Ohio. So that's sort of my optimism about why it's going to pass. And then, you know, maybe one more thing I'll say, and and then I'll pause. And then we can get on to, you know, your, your question about the business impact. I think the other thing to note is that if this passes, the initiative requires adult use sales to start within six months of the initiative passing. So it'll be a pretty quick rollout. If it passes, we can expect uh, by May 2025, that adult use sales will start. So those are all the reasons that I'm optimistic. You know, yeah. have to wait and see what happens, but I, I yeah. think those are the reasons for, for my optimism.
1: I, I forgot that that, that we had, I, I also thought it had already passed. I forgot there was the, we were waiting for the approval by the attorney general. Is that who makes the approval?
0: It's it's the Supreme Court. So the, the attorney court. general is actually arguing in court, hey, this is unconstitutional. They're saying this touches on multiple subjects, but in my ah. opinion, you know, if if you watch that 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 Supreme Court hearing, even the deeply conservative justices on that court expressed, in my opinion, deep skepticism of the argument presented by the Attorney General Ashley Moody. So those are the reasons that I, I am I'm quite optimistic that it will be on the ballot and quite optimistic that if it's on the ballot, it'll pass but I do want to note there's a spectrum of opinions out there. You know, there's some people who note that these things are inherently political and will point to what happened the previous two cycles. But um, all the evidence that I've seen leads me to be optimistic that it'll be on the ballot and pass.
1: And that's probably why uh, DeSantis is making that kind of comment, because he sees the writing on the wall also, I guess. I think
0: so. And look, you know, people sometimes make off-the-cuff comments, right? And so you know, he was just asked this on the campaign trail and that's what he said, you know, so maybe he chose his words inartfully. But yeah, Pam, I, I agree with you. I think most people recognize that if the Supreme Court were to invalidate this extremely narrowly drawn measure, they would essentially be throwing out the entire initiative process in Florida writ large because nothing then would, would be constitutional. And I think that's probably a step too far, in my opinion, for for many of the even conservative justices on the court.
1: Right, right. Okay, cool. Um. But- yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, now, now to get to, to your business, uh, you know, question. I mean, I think this, you know, if Florida passes, we we will never have seen an adult use rollout like this. You know, I think there's a lot of optimism about what this will look like, and I think I'm even more optimistic than than the consensus that exists out there. You know, Florida is obviously a huge state of 22 million people, and although we've had other big states come online before, I think most notably California and New York. We have never had a rollout in a state that is this big and has such robust medical infrastructure in place. You know, California famously, it legalized adult use and that it made the colossal mistake of deeming 90% of the existing medical businesses illegal because of local control. So, you know, California, a state of 40 million people, it was exciting, but, you know... 2,500 of the 3,000 medical dispensaries that previously existed were deemed illegal. And so that, in my mind, was one of the deep mistakes that California made and helped explain you know why it hasn't reached its potential. New York, I think, is on everyone's mind. I, I probably just don't need to remind people that it had a very limited infrastructure in place and didn't allow those operators to transition to adult use. So that's just a way of saying, yeah, we've had big states come online before, but they have not had a robust medical infrastructure that trans you know transitioned to adult use. The only analogy I can think of is Illinois. You know, Illinois is one of the few states that had a really robust, you know, sort of like medical infrastructure in place that transitioned to adult use. And that's why it was such a successful rollout. But even then, Illinois only had 55 dispensaries, right? And and is a much smaller state uh, than Florida. But Florida has 22 million people. It has had a medical program that has flourished for years. There are now 600 dispensaries that are, you know, evenly dispersed across the state. And so when I think about Florida, I think about it being the Michigan of the South. Um, And the, the reason I say that is that, you know, Michigan is the cannabis market that arguably is one of the most successful cannabis markets in the country, you know, certainly by per capita sales. And the reason for that is that, you know, there is robust retail access all across the state. There aren't these huge cannabis deserts that exist out there. So it's convenient for people to buy cannabis legally. Prices in Michigan are very competitive. So it is, you know, as a blue collar person in, in Michigan, you are able to buy cannabis legally. That's not something that you can say in a lot of states, right? Prices, right. it's convenient for me to get there. Prices are low. Um, taxes are also quite low. So you're, you're not paying more uh, on top. And also, you know, something that people may not appreciate about Michigan. But if you look under the hood, you can really tell Michigan has one of the most robust what I would call cannabis tourism economies. You know, not only do people from other states go to Michigan to purchase cannabis, but if you look under the hood and you see the way that individual cities in Michigan are advertising themselves as hubs for cannabis tourism and really try to engage there, that that suggests that they are much more open than other states are. So, that's that's what Michigan is and again, I think, you know, Florida meets those same characteristics. You have those 600 dispensaries they'll turn on by May. So you won't have these huge deserts across the state. Um, And again, I'm going to tick through these because I think there's a a lot of reasons to be excited here. There's the 22 million people. So that's a ton of people. Then you also have 130 million tourists who visit Florida each year. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, that's just a number.
1: I, I just have one question. So in Florida, will they... So, so, is it already a fact that they the medical dispensaries can flip to recreational once the law passes? That's already in place. That's
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they say you know within six months. So you know the the initiative oh. is November fifth, and so by May fifth of you know so by Cinco de Mayo um, of 2025 um, we'll have we'll have those adult use uh, stores turn on. So that's that's why the access will be will be robust. And it's sort of you know I mentioned Michigan earlier. Michigan is interesting because it went adult use and then slowly you saw dispensaries spread across the state, such that we had robust access. But Florida, it'll all happen at once, right? You already have this infrastructure in place, so. You have the stores across the state, you have 22 million people, you have 130 million tourists. I think the other thing to note, and again, I think these details matter, the tourists who come to Florida come to Florida to have fun. People are not so much going to Florida for those business conferences. I mean, maybe some of them, but people go to Florida to have fun, which lends itself to to cannabis consumption. And also other things, Florida has a remarkable number of international tourists. Many of these people are flying in from countries that that don't have cannabis. good point. Yeah, absolutely. And so,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, it'll it'll be great for Florida sales. And I think it'll also go a long way, especially because I think Florida will have a successful, you know, well-regulated professional program to sort of making cannabis look positive in the eyes of others in the same way that you know, not to get too far afield here, but I remember during UN week, which was about, say, four or five months ago, I just happened to be uh, in New York, you know, when a lot of international visitors visited, there were routine comments by people from all over the world about how much cannabis they smelled on the street, right, and how many illegal dispensaries that they saw. And many of them sort of pointed out that the hypocrisy of the United States, which had long pursued the war on drugs in their countries, and now New York was just you know, sort of a robust, illicit economy. And so it really made cannabis look negative in the eyes of many ambassadors and dignitaries from other countries. I mean, reading these quotes is 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 quite telling. Florida has the potential to do just the opposite, to show, you know how this can be professionally integrated into an economy. So I, I think that's exciting. And then, you know, finally, Florida has the potential to unlock other red states. And so when people think of Florida, they often think of Miami. But what people forget is that the Florida panhandle is probably the most culturally conservative region of the United States. Like that is as red as America gets. And it borders Georgia and Alabama. You know, Pensacola is practically in in Mississippi. You know, Louisiana is not that far away. And so Florida already gets a ton of tourists. But I think you're going to see even more tourists who are going to come in from the, the deep south. And so I think it has the potential to change you know, cannabis in, in that region of the country. I mean, literally you can drive half an hour from South Georgia into Florida. And if you look at where those dispensaries are all set up, they're, they're really well placed there. So I think that's that's really exciting. And, um, you know, Florida has always leaned in to, to tourism, you know, in, in a previous life before I worked in cannabis. I mean, this was many years ago, six, seven years ago. I worked at Airbnb building out the policy team there and we did a ton of work in Florida. And um, you know, you know, just the 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 way in which tourism is critical to that economy is is maybe obvious to people, and I think cannabis will will only accelerate that. And so, I'll just kind of conclude by saying those those are all the factors: robust access, low prices, low taxes. You know, Florida right now doesn't have a cannabis tax; like it, it only subjects its medical cannabis to the retail sales tax. It does not have a medical cannabis tax, which is which is remarkable. And so, the tax rate they adopt, given their anti-tax, posture will be low and so I mean I actually think that in the second half of 2025 right let's say this initiative passes sales start in May of 2025 I think in the second half of 2025 Florida has the potential to do more sales than California despite being half the population I could see you know again in the third quarter and the fourth quarter of 25 Florida doing something like three billion or more in sales which you know is more than California is is doing now and, you know, if Michigan, a state of 10 million people, which sees far less tourists than Florida, even though it does see some during the summer, far less than Florida, if that can be a $3 billion market, I think there's no reason Florida can't be a $6 billion or or greater market. And so those are all the reasons that it's exciting from a business perspective. And I think there's also from a, a national political perspective, there, there are reasons to be excited. But I'll, I'll maybe pause there. I mean, those are all the reasons it will be an exciting market just domestically.
1: Yeah, that's so amazing. I didn't think about the like the international visitors, but I mean, I know they get a lot of Canadians in Florida, but like Miami, like you said, and and I always felt like New York was great for brands launching in New York because of the access to international tourists in, here in New York City, and I, I feel like that could be an opportunity for brands to really want to get into. Florida for the very reason to be able to start tapping into the international market and, you know, building brand awareness. Um, are they going to be a limited uh, license state? Uh, so they
0: currently, they, they currently are a, a limited license state. And some people have probably justifiably criticized Florida on that account. And so Florida has long had a very rigid, limited license structure. Um, They've had a strict vertical integration requirement, which means that everything that you sell in your stores, you also have to produce. And so Florida historically has had, you know, they initially issued 22 licenses, which is remarkable. If, If you think about a state of 22 million people, they issued less than a couple dozen licenses, which entitled you to do everything, seed to sale and open as many dispensaries as you wanted across the state. Since then, they've started to issue additional licenses but, you know, there's there's no way to get around the fact that, yes, it's been pretty monopolistic in Florida. There's one company, Flu- um, TrueLeave, that, you know, probably generates 40 percent or 30 percent of the sales in, in the state. So I think that's that's a valid criticism. The way that that program was set up, there were really high barriers to entry. And the adult use initiative doesn't really in a meaningful you know, way envision expansion of that. And you know, you could also say, hey, even if you, addition, you know, issue additional licenses, it's going to be really hard for people to catch up to TrueLeave, and it's 135 stores. So I think that's that's a criticism that's justified. That said, you know, for all the reasons we discussed, I think it has the potential to be a really um, exciting market just out of the gate in a way that no other big market really has um, been been as impactful out of the gate.
1: Yeah. Wow. And the low taxes. Uh, coupled with uh, rescheduling, hopefully, could be really a boom for for businesses. Yeah, wow. Really? And
0: and and I also think so. Th- those are all the reasons it, it's exciting from a business perspective. I think it can also have national reverberations as well, right? I think in the year twenty, you know, in recent years, Florida has become, you know, in in sort of the Trump and post-Trump era, Florida has become the kind of red state in the in the national consciousness. Obviously, that's sort of what Ron DeSantis has has run run on. Um, But I think, you know, as we were discussing before, there's a 60 percent threshold. I think Florida has the potential to come close to or set the record for the highest, you know, vote total in um, on a ballot initiative. So that record was New Jersey, which had 67 percent of the vote. And, you know, there's some people that are nervous about hitting the 60 percent threshold. But, you know, for all the reasons that I mentioned, cannabis is so normalized in Florida. That medical initiative in 2016 got 72 um, percent of the vote. I think florida has the potential to do really well and hit something like 66 67 percent uh, and i mean i think that would just be a thunderous event across the country if the if the red state in america what is now understood to be the big red state in america shows such such support for cannabis this demonstrates that it's widely bipartisan uh, and so i think that will send a message across the country even more than ohio did with its 57 percent. and if i also think about how it might impact the behavior of different politicians in florida If I think about someone like Rick Scott, you know, the senator from Florida who's running for re-election and in his 2018 race, I mean, he won by one of the narrowest margins in American history. He won with 50.05 percent of the vote. If there's a world in which he narrowly wins again with 50, 50 percent of the 51 percent of the vote against his Democratic opponent and cannabis wins by 67 percent, I think it's going to be a lot harder for him to maintain what to this point has been his deeply anti-cannabis politics, and the same thing is true for for Senator Marco Rubio. It, it won't change it overnight, right? But I think you know if cannabis is that much more popular than you, then you really have to look in the mirror about the positions that, that you're taking. And you know, even Ron DeSantis in his much heralded you know re-election in 2022, the thing that gave him the momentum to run for the presidency. He got 60 percent of the vote. Right. If if cannabis exceeds that and he for a long time was touting that as a mandate, it becomes yeah. a lot mean, the GOP to, to 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 look the other way here. So that's that's why I think it's it's so exciting, again, not just because of the market potential, but because of the way it'll change the reflexive anti cannabis politics that most people in the Florida GOP have had uh, uh, until now. So-
1: great point! Wow, that's such a great point. It really might shift everybody's mindset who, who is against it. Yeah, they have to. Wow, great point. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so um, onto Ohio. Um, so. Ohio just recently uh, legalized based on voters' decision, and um, some lawmakers are pushing to um, make some amendments and, and changes. I don't know if there's anything current on that. If you want to update us, you know where where they are, um, if there's any significant changes, and then um, you know how does legalization impact the growth of the industry in the surrounding states in Ohio?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, first, as you said, we can talk through the sort of procedural steps that, that happen now and where we're at, and then talk about its impact. And so, you know, as you mentioned, Pam, in November, Ohio uh, voted to legalize adult use by a pretty healthy margin, you know, 57 to 43%, which is a pretty big deal for, you know, a, a red state like Ohio. As, as you also mentioned, that, that initiative passed three months ago, but the state legislature in Ohio has been attempting to revise uh, the, the initiative. Um, and you know, I, I think the good news is because it passed by 57%, there hasn't been political support for repealing the initiative. Prior to the vote, there was the you know suggestion by some of the GOP members there that, hey, if this narrowly passes, we may take another look at it and potentially repeal it. And that's actually something that these legislators have the power to do under Ohio law. And so people were concerned that even if this passed, it might not come to fruition. And so there are attempts to sort of uh, modify the initiative, some people aren't happy about those attempts. You know, there may be attempts to gut some of the equity provisions or to change some of the public consumption laws. I think the good news is that, A, that 57% margin means that there are no loud voices calling for a complete repeal. So that's that's a good thing, number one. Uh, Number two, the good thing is that the way that the initiative was written is that sales have to start automatically within 10 months of the initiative passing. So the initiative passed on November 7th, you know, uh, last year. So that means by basically Labor Day 2024, that's the latest date by which sales have to start. And so even though the legislature is going back and forth and people are frustrated about the fact that they haven't developed these rules, if they can't get off their hands, um, then... Sales will start by September 7th, so it's at least reassuring that we have a fixed date there. That's what makes Ohio different than a place like Virginia, which legalized cannabis three years ago, but, you know, where we still don't have sales. And I think the other encouraging thing is that amongst the GOP leaders that oppose the initiative, now many of them are saying like, hey, we need to start sales soon because otherwise we're going to allow the illicit market to proliferate. And in that way, I think New York has been hugely beneficial to a lot of states across the country because it's allowed other governors especially more conservative governors to look and say, I don't want that in my state. And so it's made them become more more practical. And so, you know, we'll have to see in, in the coming weeks and months what happens. And maybe one other thing I'll mention, you know, before we go on to like what its impact is, is that if these legislators pass a law, the way that Ohio law works is like you pass something and there's generally 90 days before it takes effect. So let's say they pass something in April, then sales would probably start in July. Let's say they pass something in May, sales would probably start in August So my expectation is that sometime in Q3, you'll start sales. Maybe we'll get lucky and it'll sort of be earlier than we thought around July 4th. Probably what's more likely is that it'll be around Labor Day 2024. And so, you know, there's there's it's been a little bit of a circus, but that's why I'm still optimistic about about where this might go. So
1: is Ohio, uh, is their medical program also flipping to rec automatically?
0: Yes. And so.
1: Okay, so that's pretty standard, except for, the, for New York, basically, and
0: California. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you could say that. There's, there's different permutations out there. But yeah, I, I think what you basically said is right. New York was probably unique in that it seemed to treat its existing medical operators with disdain and not wanting them to, to opt in. As you pointed out in California, California was unique in that it said, oh, we'll legalize cannabis. But by the way, this you know, this gray market economy that existed for 20 years, we're just going to make that all illegal Hopefully this will work out. So yeah, o- Ohio is different in that regard. And I would say, you know, there there are many models out there, but Ohio, like many states, is doing some combination of will allow existing operators to transition to adult use, but at the same time, we will we'll issue additional licenses um, to to you know some existing operators and to some non-existing operators, which, you know, I think is a more reasonable and practical way to develop a diverse cannabis economy rather than, you know, see this as a zero-sum game and see some as good actors and, and, and bad actors, which never seems to work out well. But.
1: Okay. So they can, so they're not in danger of, of not having sales, like you said, Ohio, because they're flipping uh, the rep market. Cause then that was my question is when do the license applications, uh, you know, when are they accepting applications for uh, new dispensaries? Um, that's what I was thinking. How can they get that going, a- approve them and get stores up and running, but they don't have to worry about that.
0: Yeah, what, what they're likely to do, and again, we'll see. Maybe the state legislature will will tweak this, but you know, what what they're they're likely to do is sometime this summer, right, they will start the process by which you issue additional licenses. Uh, and then obviously those licenses, those new ones, are unlikely to come online until next year or so. So yes, the incumbent operators will get to access the market first, uh, but with a vision towards diversifying the market over time, which is a attack that we've seen in, you know, in a few places now, Missouri, Maryland, others where start it, you know, give consumers access to safe product, you know, yeah. allow folks to transition, but also have an eye towards how we can give other people opportunities to shape a more diverse market over time.
1: Actually, I have another question on that because, um, you know, one of uh, the fears in New York, um, you know, uh, was that if if we gave uh, the medical dispensaries, you know, first first dibs at at, at the market, that they were, you know, big corporation was gonna take over. That was like one of the big fears that they talked about in the news all the time. Do you see that happening since all these other states are flipping uh, medical dispensaries over when they legalize? is, Is this some, I mean, or wouldn't we, I guess we won't even see it yet. Maybe it's not revealed yet, but have you seen that happening? Is that a real fear that people should have? I mean, yes, I know it is a fear, but is it evident now, is it happening?
0: I mean, I think New York is a classic example of where the rhetoric exceeded the reality, right? So there was some concern that, you know, these large multi-state operators were going to dominate the market. But the way that the law was written in New York is that these multi-state operators would be able to operate three... Adult use stores, right? It's really hard to make the case that allowing someone to operate three retail stores will allow them to dominate a state as big as New York, right? In California, which is an extremely fragmented market, there are operators with 35 stores and some with 30 stores and some with 25 stores and one with 20 stores. And so I think that was a classic example of where people saw political upside in identifying a boogeyman. And look, we should, you know, I think most Americans don't like monopolies. We recognize that a more diverse marketplace is better for consumers and gives them more options. And we see that as the basic fairness that undergirds our free market system. So, yes, we should be sensitive to concerns about monopolies. But I think... We have to question whether some of those voices that are, you know, that are scaring people about monopolies are actually looking at the facts. And it's really hard to make the case that, you know, someone operating three stores is going to monopolize the entire state of New York. That that really doesn't make sense. And I think New York is the classic example of while we we're all focused on the MSOs as the bad actors, we allowed the proliferation of these illicit ah. stores and you know, you, you read articles about some of these equity applicants that have open stores and they're really excited and then tucked into the article, it'll say, well, unfortunately, there's 200 other illegal dispensaries in this neighborhood of Queens where these folks are operating. And that seems like a much bigger threat to equity applicants than, you know, yes. um, so operating three stores across the state. So,
1: yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, great.
0: But yeah, that's that's sort of the, the procedure on, on Ohio and, you know, why Ohio is so exciting. I mean, I think this story is really quite similar to Florida. So, I mean, why, why are we so excited? Maybe the first thing to note, you know, just zooming out from Ohio is it's been interesting to see the Midwest emerge as a real power center for cannabis, which wasn't the case a few years ago. I mean, if you look at Michigan and Illinois, just as an example, and you look at how they did in December 2023, right, the, the way that they performed. You know, Michigan and Illinois, if you put their two sales together, it was almost half a billion dollars in that month, right? So just to unpack that, you know, Michigan generated 280 million in sales, and Illinois, another 200. So that's almost half a billion. Those two Mm -hmm. states together are about 22 million people. They did more in sales than California did, right, which is 40 million people. So, I mean, if we really stop and think about that, these two states— that legalized cannabis after California did, and so arguably are now less, you know, are, are less mature, and that are half the population and aren't known for cannabis culture in the same way as California did more in sales. And so it's exciting to see the Midwest emerge as a power center for cannabis. The Midwest is, by some metrics, the most classically American, you know, part of, of the country. It's different than the coasts in our national imagination. So uh, it's exciting that the Midwest is starting to emerge as a power center, namely those two states you know, if we broaden our lens a little bit, you know, Missouri, I think is still technically part of the Midwest, even though it's a little further south. Obviously, Missouri's had a really exciting market. So it is exciting to see common sense cannabis policies prevail in in the Midwest and be successful. And so Ohio is exciting in part because it will add to the Midwest as a power center for cannabis. And, you know, just like we were talking about with Florida you know Ohio borders a, a number of prohibition states and we have seen with Missouri and you know we will see with Florida how that is such a huge driver of sales and so if you just look at the big urban centers that are on the Ohio border i mean if you really look at them you you'll see how how productive Ohio has the potential to be you know Cincinnati is right on the Kentucky border and so you know when i read about these medical stores that are set up in downtown Cincinnati next to the Hard Rock casino where people from Kentucky are used to driving into right um, I- you know, there's 100,000 people that live in Kentucky that are technically the Cincinnati suburbs. That has immense potential, right? And I, I feel like people who have those stores should be licking their chops right now. Um, or, you know, how easy it is to drive from Indianapolis in into Ohio, or how easy it is to drive from Charleston, West Virginia, just, you know, northwest a little bit in, into um, in, in, into Appalachian, Ohio, or, you know, Pittsburgh, Maybe maybe the best example, right? I mean, Pittsburgh is you know, sort of culturally indistinguishable from Youngstown, Ohio, right? These are both, this is both steel country, right? These are essentially the same place, even if they're divided by a border. So Ohio, again, I think is similar to Florida in that it sent a message nationally, which with its huge support for cannabis, it's a quintessential big red state. It has a massive population, just like Florida, although it's a little smaller, you know, 13 million, but still a lot of people. And then it borders a number of prohibition states that are kind of stuck on inertia, you know, states that don't have a ballot initiative process, that have a GOP supermajority that has enough power to ignore the, you know, the will of the people. These places have, you know, despite the fact that popular support for cannabis has grown, has, you know, these states have ignored any attempts at cannabis reform. And so it'll be very exciting that Ohio will do well because it'll draw a lot of this traffic, but... You know, as has been said by many, many people before, it's not just that that means Ohio will do well, but that changes the conversation in neighboring states. And I think if you, you know, really nerd out here and you read kind of the local news, as I enjoy doing, you know, on cannabis policy, and you look at the quotes from law enforcement who say, yeah, I mean, I guess cannabis is still technically illegal in West Virginia. And yeah, I mean, I guess we'll still arrest people right who come across the border there's still some acknowledgement that okay this is not really a sustainable solution and so it illustrates the hypocrisy of something being a felony and then if you you know you you walk 10 yards uh, it uh, it it's a legal product so it changes the law enforcement conversation it gives state legislators in Indiana and West Virginia the courage to stand up for the first time and say what are we doing here folks and so it has already started to change the conversation in West Virginia, in Indiana, and in Kentucky, where an adult use conversation would have been unthinkable. And so not to suggest that those states will pass adult use laws in 2024, but for the first time, there are people raising their hand in the legislature, standing up and saying, we need to do something, right? Um, and these are all often people who represent these border areas, you know, people who represent Northern Kentucky, you know, whose constituents are practically in uh, Indiana. And so- Uh, I think Ohio has the potential to unlock red states in the same way that Florida has that potential uh, in in the deep south. And maybe the most important, you know, this isn't so much a red state, but maybe the most important state um, is Pennsylvania, which it neighbors, you know, Pittsburgh is practically in, in Ohio. And you know, uh, one thing I'll just say about Pennsylvania is that it is, you know, technically a bl- blue state or a purple state, but like many states, it's heavily gerrymandered. And so it has, a, you know, it, the GOP owns one branch of the legislature. Those folks will never sign off on an adult use bill until it becomes evident, you know, real. in the same way that people are driving from Philadelphia into New Jersey, oh. we'll need people to start driving in from Pittsburgh to Ohio. And, um, I think when that really starts ramping up in a meaningful way, that'll finally give Pennsylvania the momentum it needs to um, to 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 flip, which is something we've been waiting on for a long time.
1: And then you have John Fetterman, Senator John Fetterman banging the drum loudly almost every day, you know, yeah. trying to push for legalization. so he's he's really a very big advocate in that state, I know for sure. Yeah, I feel like it's just getting close for Pennsylvania, I, I would think.
0: It, it is. And I think, you know, you said it well, they're banging the drum, right? Fetterman's banging the drum. Governor Josh Shapiro, you know, made it a key part of his budget, uh, which is exciting. And people will see these leading, you know, Democratic officials in Pennsylvania banging the drum. And they'll come to the conclusion that like, oh, we're going to legalize this year. But in part, they're banging the drum because they see it as necessary to raise the visibility of the issue with the public as the GOP right in that in those states continues to be an obstacle. And so, you know, if I think about Governor Shapiro, who made a ton of waves this week, last week, by talking about how the legislature has no choice but to legalize cannabis and he made it a part of its budget. Yes, that's great. And that gives people sometimes who are reading a headline a lot of optimism. And I think it's great that they're banging the drum. But really, that only comes to fruition when that is followed by a state like Ohio coming online, and then us seeing the data about how much we're how much money we're losing. That is sort of, you know, sort of what needs to happen in order for that to just go beyond the rhetoric of one politician to become the the reality. And so When I when I read those statements, sometimes I I read them um, with some caution Um, and and I'll just, you know, not to get too far into the weeds here. One thing I'll say about Governor Shapiro in particular, you know, what he said is like, hey, we need to legalize cannabis and generate all this tax revenue. The reason he's saying that is because he, as a Democratic governor, has this really expansive view of what he wants to do with government. He wants to invest in all of these programs. He views cannabis as a conduit for doing that. The GOP doesn't want to do that stuff. Right. So not only do they not like cannabis, they don't want to give him the money to like do, you know, engage in all these other programs. And so, you know, one way to look at it is like, oh, it's great. He included it in his budget. That must mean it's happening. But really what that means is like he needs this in order to get his budget passed and his opponents oppose this. And so his inclusion of it should not be taken as gospel that it will be part of what, what happens next year. So, again, that's why. You need those dispensaries in Youngstown, Ohio to be cranking with people coming across that border and for that to seep into, you know, the Pennsylvania newspapers and 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 for that to really change the dynamics there.
1: And and also you have Philadelphia's bordering, you know, southern Jersey. Um, you would think, you know, th- though I have to say there's not as many dispensaries open in southern Jersey. Um uh and you know, because that again, is a, a county by county or municipality by municipality decision. And there ha- have been a lot of municipalities in New Jersey who have opted out right now. Um, so um, yeah. but it, yeah um, no,
0: you're you're absolutely right. you know, as of as of you and I speaking right now, there's about a hundred adult use dispensaries in New Jersey, which isn't a lot, given that New Jersey has been online for two years now, the you know, the optimist out there would say, yeah, that's true. But 50 of those hundred dispensaries opened in the last six months. So we're picking up the pace. So that that is a good thing. And as you pointed out, Pam, the more, you know, the faster we can get stores online in New Jersey, the more people in Pennsylvania that will live you know, in a 45-minute drive or an hour drive of someplace in Jersey, the mo- more those sales numbers will start to reveal themselves. So yeah, I would say more than Josh Shapiro, more than anyone else, the real you know, metric for when adult use sales will start in Pennsylvania is how quickly can stores in Jersey get online and how quickly can those stores in Ohio get online and how much traffic do we see? I see that as really the key variable, uh, in sort of overcoming the obstinance that, you know, GOP members in Pennsylvania continue to have as of today saying, Hey, this is a non-starter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, um, so Maryland, I think Maryland's kind of exciting. Um, also, you know, DC area, but, um, so Maryland opened its, uh, adult use market with no social equity program, which now I'm getting to understand after talking to you, um, that it's typical to flip the, uh, medical dispensaries over to rec. And now they're just beginning to open up their, uh, uh, licensing applications. So, um,
0: I, I think, you know, um, One of the interesting things about Maryland is to contrast its approach to an equity program with California and New York, right? So if we start with California and and New York, right um there, there are two different models i'd say california and new york present one model and maryland presents a different model and i think the interesting thing is you know which model will states start to follow going forward and so if i think about the california and new york model what what do they contain they contain really high taxes right um so they're like hey we're going to develop an equity program to support disenfranchised people that were negatively impacted by the war on drugs but we're going to tax them to death right that's one component of the model and I'll say it's, it's always fascinating to me, you know, California, and New York will tax, you know, cannabis heavily, they will take that tax money, and they will give it to a nonprofit, right? And that nonprofit will sort of allegedly be helping people, you know, navigate the, the process and will be protecting them from predatory investors, say, but it always begs the question, you know, who made the who made the environment uninvestable in the first place? Like what created the conditions for predatory investment? And so there's always, it's always kind of strange to me when, look, and we should assist people through the process, I'm all for incubation and development programs, but it's always kind of funny to me when we tax these businesses to death such that we can hand it over to some white knight nonprofit that is aligned with the government, and and, and that nonprofit will allegedly be helping people through the process, which I don't think has worked out super well in in New York. And so, I mean, again, just to to flush out the California-New York model, there's high taxes. I think that's one characteristic of it. That's undeniable. Uh, the second is a, a deliberately very slow licensing process. I think the mantra that has been adopted by these regulators in, in California and New York is that we're going to do it right rather than do it fast, right? That's the constant thing that is being said. Now, what's interesting is that in that vacuum of a slow licensing process where cannabis has been decriminalized is a proliferation of illicit stores. And so, again, I think the question we ask ourselves is, you know, is an equity a model uh, sort of uh, lined up for success when you have tons of illegal competition. As someone who lives in L.A., my emphatic answer to that question is, is no. Um, and I think New York sort of bears the same thing. And so you have a proliferation of illicit stores and also a sense that consumers don't really matter, right? We're most focused on how we arrange this market in the ways that you know are composed of the people we like and whether consumers have access to safe product doesn't matter, right? Whether they can conveniently access product doesn't matter. So it's sort of an interesting way of thinking about the stakeholders. And, you know, maybe the final thing about that California, New York model, a point you were making earlier, Pam, is that it's very zero sum, right? It's this idea that we have to prevent these existing operators from transitioning to adult use because this market is finite and those folks are going to dominate the market. Um, And so we want to hold them back to allow these other people to succeed. Um, So so that's the characteristic of, of that model. I think Maryland is a very different model in that. It has low taxes, right? It had a low tax rate of 9%. You had, you know, a very liberal governor, Governor Wes Moore, who, you know, won by 60-something percent of the vote, thought of as a future presidential candidate who says, yeah, this isn't about raising tax money, right? This, you know, this isn't about trying to squeeze as, as much out of these operators as possible. So you have low taxes. You allow existing operators to transition to adult use. And so, you know, Maryland started its program within, you know, six or seven months of it passing the initiative, saying like, hey... We legalize cannabis. Consumers should be able to access cannabis that is safe and tested. Um, And, you know, while allowing those operators to set up shop, it issues new licenses to um, equity applicants, you know, and often does so in kind of a, a micro business style. And I think what's interesting about that is that oftentimes micro businesses don't require the immense capital that are required for other types of operations and so are in that way not as indebted to investors. And so We'll have to see how the Maryland model kind of unfolds. I don't want to pretend it's perfect. And you know, people will know that just recently, you know, the Maryland equity program, like a lot of equity programs, was you know, sued for being unconstitutional. So we'll have to see how it works out. But I think what's undeniable is that these are two very different models, one that's big on taxation, a very bureaucratic licensing process that views something as a zero-sum game, um, another model that's based on low taxes that prioritizes consumer access and then attempts to diversify the market over time by issuing licenses to additional equity micro-businesses. And I think we've already seen the results of the California and New York approach, and I think people are more optimistic about the approach that, that Maryland might take. And so, I you know, I, that's all a way of saying we're seeing, you know, two different theories on how you create the equity and diversity that many of us want to see in cannabis, and what is fascinating is, you know, we were talking about Virginia briefly earlier. Now Virginia, as it tries to develop its own program, and is trying to thread that needle in the same way that Maryland was, trying to say, hey, yeah, consumers should have access, and these existing operators have some right to access the market, but look, we don't want it be, to be dominated by a handful of companies. None of us, no matter our political orientations, want that. Virginia has, you know, kind of explicit, and we'll have to see whether these bills pass, and, you know, obviously they have a Republican governor who might veto them. But they are attempting to model something based on the Maryland model, which says, "Hey, we're going to adopt the same tax rate as Maryland of nine percent. We're going to allow the existing operators to transition to adult use relatively quickly. But those operators will have an obligation. Like if they want that first crack at the market, that's fine. We get that. They deserve it, you know, perhaps, and consumers deserve it. But if they want that, then they'll have an obligation to incubate a number of equity micro businesses, like." they have some obligation as their exercise, right, to to help diversify the market. And so that seems like a less ideological way to approach this. And maybe the final thing I'll say is, it seems consistent with the idea that this is not a zero-sum game. You know, we need an ecosystem to be healthy. And, you know, there's no single actor, I think, that has the potential to monopolize this market. And we see that, you know, there are examples in other states of Equity applicants and 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 larger operators benefiting from one another. If you look at Illinois, more and more equity licensees are coming online, and that gives these large operators the opportunity to sell their wholesale product to these new stores that are opening. And so the fact yeah. that yeah, yeah.
1: oh my there. god, yes, yeah. I didn't even know that was happening. That has been something I've been thinking about, especially here in New York. Is that's what that's the kind of program we need is. And to maybe put it the onus on like the multi-state operators to help out social equity entrepreneurs get up and running uh because most likely they're new entrepreneurs, you know, they need the hand holding. It's it's a it's a great way to do it. And then, you know, and but also I thought I read that um Maryland is making it uh, ex, uh is exclusively um Uh, giving first round licensing to social equity applicants. That sounds like similar to New York. And that's why we had the lawsuits. Is that a danger of what they're going to be facing? Is that what you're saying?
0: I think, I mean, you know, all of these equity programs maybe are potentially vulnerable to lawsuits because some of them are predicated on residency requirements that some courts say like are unconstitutional. So it really will be fascinating for all of these programs to see what the courts say, you know, over the next year or two. But I think your, your description was was on the mark. The way I would put it is the difference between New York and Maryland is that Maryland said, hey, the existing medical operators will be able to transition to adult use. But going forward, we will issue new licenses to equity operators. New York said, you know, the existing medical operators will not be able to access adult use And in theory, we're going to issue new licenses to equity operators, but really we're going to develop such a convoluted process that none of those licenses will open. Oh, and by the way, there'll be no penalty whatsoever for engaging in illicit activity. So you kind of have the worst of all worlds, right? You don't allow the existing businesses to open. You don't allow new businesses to open. And, you know, you will uh, sort of allow a total proliferation of unlicensed activity run by whomever, backed by whomever, uh, selling whatever. And so, Um, that, uh, you know, that doesn't seem like a recipe for success.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's insane. That's insane. Well, that's good. That would be really interesting to watch the Maryland social equity market. I have to dig deeper into the, uh, the micro business, uh, mentoring program that they're implementing um so uh okay great so i'm um, kind of winding it down um so i know that there's some uh potential november 2024 uh ballot measures coming up in uh possibly in um, arkansas uh nebraska of course florida and south dakota um just wondering if you can update us on that and if you think that might really be happening uh yeah.
0: Yeah, I think these ballot initiatives are always exciting. You know, if we look back at history, it'll be ballot initiatives often during presidential elections that have really moved the cannabis industry forward. If we look back to 2020, we'll say, oh my God, New Jersey legalized, but also Montana, a red state, Mississippi passed its medical initiative back then. And so, you know, uh, ballot initiatives, but especially those during presidential elections, if you go back to 16, or obviously 2012 with Washington, Colorado, or 2020s I just mentioned, those are always big step changes forward for the cannabis industry. I think 2024 has similar potential. We already discussed the really the big kahuna, which is Florida, right, you know, which hopefully will be on the ballot for the reasons we discussed. And if Florida were to pass, you know, then nearly 60% of Americans would live in an adult use state. And, you know, that's even if we don't think about the other states that might take action between now and then legislatively, you know, Hawaii is having a conversation, New Hampshire is having a conversation. But even if none of those came to pass, right, if Florida came to pass, we would go from about 53% of the population to almost 60 that have passed adult use, which would be remarkable. Uh, You know, Florida is a big state. So that's one. I think the other one that is interesting, even though it's a smaller state, is South Dakota. And people may remember, South Dakota has kind of been through the ringer, right? So in 2020, South Dakota passed a ballot initiative with 54% of the vote. After it passed, this initiative, because of opposition from the governor, Christine Nome. Was later deemed unconstitutional, which is really one of the more egregious examples um, out there, right? This is an adult use measure. It's one thing to inval- prevent people from voting on it in the first place. It's another thing to to invalidate it entirely. Deeply anti democratic, but yeah, seriously, it, it's, it's yeah, it's it's pretty shameful. Yes, um, but it, it passed in 2020. They tried to take another crack at it in 2022. And what's interesting is that in 2022 this initiative failed with only 47% of the vote. And so I think it gives you into a window into how different the electorate is between a presidential election versus a non-presidential election. It's a different elective elect, you know electorate with different turnout. By the way, that's why the Ohio GOP forced that election to 2023 rather than 2024, because they thought it would fail in 23 because it was an off-cycle election. And so South Dakota, it failed in, in 2022. I mean, that seven-point swing is pretty remarkable, but um, it's likely to be on the ballot um, in 2024. And, you know, they still need to collect, you know, signatures in South Dakota. South Dakota is a small state, so they need something like 17,000 uh, signatures, So, uh, you know, that that deadline is in May. So we won't know until May whether it's qualified for the ballot. But if it qualifies for the ballot, I think it stands a pretty good chance, especially now that neighboring states like Minnesota have have legalized and going back to that 2020 vote. And the reason that's significant, I think, is that even though South Dakota is a small state, it's a conservative state. And I think we're now at the point where every incremental state that comes online changes the conversation. You know, we now have 24 adult use states. And, you know, if you read just the newspapers on cannabis, it is a different conversation than when we had 17 or 18 states. The most common refrain you hear out of politicians' mouths, out of reporters, is half the states have legalized cannabis. Like that, you know, yeah. each state matters, even if it's not populous. And so you know, maybe Florida could be number 25, as we've been discussing. And, you know, South Dakota has the potential to be number 26, right? And in in November, which, you know, symbolically, conceptually, I think is meaningful. And again, imagine a world in which we see legislative action in say a place like Hawaii, you know, South Dakota has the potential to be number 27 in that world. And so small state, but that's why I'm optimistic and why I think it matters. Even though it's a small state. And then the other two measures you you mentioned, Pam, are the the medical measures. There's the um, medical one in Arkansas. The reason why I think this is fascinating is this is a medical expansion measure, which is to say, You know, Arkansas has long had a medical program, but the measure that will, you know, likely be on the ballot, but, you know, again, we'll have to see there's a July deadline by which signatures are are due. The Attorney General of Arkansas is reviewing the language right now and only once you get the language sign off can you collect the signatures so there's still some steps between here and there, but if this were to be on the ballot. What I think is fascinating about this measure is it doesn't adopt an adult use program, but it adopts what I would call call like a really permissive patient program. I think it provides a model for states that have some ideological block against legalizing cannabis, but are more... Um, persuaded by the idea that we should make this really medically available to people if they wanted. And so what this program would do is it would do things like dramatically expand the qualifying conditions for cannabis in Arkansas. Right now there's a narrow list of them. It would expand the number of people that can issue one of those prescriptions. So not just certain types of doctors, but like a wider range of medical professionals that could potentially prescribe um, those those, uh, provisions. It would uh, sort of pare back a lot of the regulations on these medical businesses. And so that's um that's that's sort of what I think is exciting, is that um it it sort of provides a model maybe for states in the deep south or maybe in the mountain west that aren't comfortable with quote unquote, you know, a California-style adult use program, but would be comfortable with saying, okay, we, we are comfortable, we have decided that this is medicine, and we will make it easier to issue these prescriptions and easier for people to access this medicine. And so I think I think that's really exciting in Arkansas and its expansion potential there. And You know, maybe the final one I'll mention is um, Nebraska, as we were talking about before. Nebraska continues to be, you know, one of the dozen or so deep prohibition states. There's an effort, you know, to get it on the ballot in um, November. Like Arkansas, there's a July deadline there. And the reason why Nebraska is significant is, you know, some people might dismiss it because it's a small state. But right now, we have 38 states that have legalized medical cannabis. And as that number ticks up further and further, I think it starts to impact the federal conversation, you know, if this rescheduling conversation we're having is in part about the idea that cannabis is medicine, it seems difficult to deny that cannabis is medicine once 40, 41, 42 states have adopted a medical program. And, you know, if we, if we go back to that detailed HHS letter that came out, the 250 page memo, it relied explicitly on the data from these medical programs. And so, again, symbolically increasing that number of states, I think, is, is very important and why it's still worth being excited about.
1: I didn't realize that um, Arkansas had such a restrictive medical uh, program, and and um, yeah, so that that's interesting. But do you think they're in any in the running to uh, to go uh, adult use um, in in the near future? I mean, I know they need one more step if they're just you know trying to expand their medical program. And I'm sorry, another thing I wanted to ask you about that is, can, do they do do people just need to get a medical card to um to be able to purchase in the dispensaries is that's what's restricting them you're saying to give them more access what what, what what's the restriction on people walking in not walk, you know walking into a dispensary and just purchasing products
0: totally yeah. So to answer your first question, you know, Arkansas, and this is why I think it's so fascinating. Arkansas in 2022 had an adult use ballot initiative that that just got creamed at the polls, right? So in 2022, again, an off cycle election, but you might remember 2022 was the first time we got walloped, right? After success, after success, we lost in South Dakota, right? We lost in Arkansas, you know, later we lost in Oklahoma, right? And a lot of these off cycle elections. And so oh, yeah. in 2022, we got walloped in Arkansas, I think it was 43 to like 57 i mean that's that's a huge loss and what was fascinating about that is part of that is that it was an off cycle election i bet it would have done better in 2020 or 2024 but part of it was that the entire GOP establishment in Arkansas sort of organized in opposition to this measure. And the refrain that they kept adopting was, don't California are Arkansas. And so California in a lot of these states is a dirty word. It's a four-letter word. And so I think that showed that, you know, highlighting this as as sort of like a blue state issue has, has some power in Arkansas politics and maybe in a lot of states, right? And so I think the intelligent thing behind this 2024 measure is it sidesteps these claims that we're going to give birth to a New York or California style program. And it just says, hey, this medical program has existed for years. We all agree that cannabis is medicine, right? Now, now that we've been, you know, now that we've been, there are, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients, we agree on that, right? Okay, good. Well, let's make it easier for patients to access the program. Now, what that means is, um, you know, to your question, Pam, about like what, you know, what, what, is, what does that more permissive access mean? That permissive access means, hey, it's not so hard to qualify for a MedCarb because the universe of medical professionals in Arkansas that can prescribe that to you are not just like a doctor or a specific type of doctor, but you know, a physician's assistant potentially, right? Or, or some types of nurses. So that's one thing. And secondly, they can prescribe that for you for any condition that they deem legitimate, as opposed to, oh, you have to have you know Dravnett syndrome or or you know some kind of specific medical condition. And so. It, it creates a model for how do we create a medical program that does not involve state, you know, the government intervening between you and your doctor, but that says, hey, we consider this to be medicine. And if you find a medical professional that deems that you have some medical need for cannabis, then uh, then you are allowed to, to access the, the program. and. You know, I'll just say I think it's consistent with the understanding that many of us have about cannabis now that cannabis is not merely useful for a list of a dozen or so medical conditions. You shouldn't have to be terminally ill in order to access cannabis, right, or close to it. Um, And that the government has no role standing between you and your doctor. And again, the reason I think this is fascinating is that makes a lot of sense to people in more conservative parts of America, right? They Like when debates happen about the healthcare system, they are suspicious of government intervention, right, in the relationship between them and their doctor. And so that kind of thinking has a lot of purchase, I think, in more conservative parts of the country and also reflects the the, the more appropriate understanding of cannabis. So I just think it's, it's tactfully very smart. I hope it's successful. And I think if it is successful, it has the potential to... Uh, spread to these more conservative states that probably aren't going to get on board with adult use anytime soon, right? Like a South Carolina or a North Carolina or an Idaho or a Wisconsin, places oh. that are flirting with medical programs that are super restrictive, such that they're not even really meaningful. This this provides an avenue for them to s- set up meaningful programs. And that's why I think it's such an exciting model.
1: Oh, that's a good point for those real diehard holdout states that, mm-hmm. yeah, they could... That they could follow that, and then also, um, you know, I would imagine that with the uh, potential uh, rescheduling will really push some states over the line that you know are flirting with uh, adult use, wouldn't you think so?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I certainly hope so. There, there are many GOP governors on uh, who are on record as saying, "Hey, this is a Schedule One drug. That's why we can't pass anything here," and you know, I'm not willing to move until the federal government moves. It'll be interesting to see if their positions change once the federal government moves. I mean, given our politics, sometimes it's it's just the instinct to oppose what the other party is supporting. But, yeah, I I would think that, you know, that movement and especially right. The power of that 252 page document um, from from HHS that spoke the truth that many of us have known for half a century, but that the government was in denial of. One would think that that would slowly organically change the conversation. And um, you know, sort of inspires me.
1: Yeah, great. Perfect way to end. Woohoo! Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
0: Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.